You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, kind of, and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with Ryan McKinney, the American bass baritone will reprise his role as Joseph Desrochers when Dead Man Walking finally makes its Met debut next season. Oliver talks to Ryan about that Jake Heggy opera and the one that he's about to tour with Music of Remembrance. And then Apple Classical, is it worth it? Weston's got an answer to that in free throw plus two in a drill. Is L.A. Opera finally rid of the nightmare that is Placido Domingo? We can only hope. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. It's that easy. Ah, Weston, we finally got rid of the chaff and now it's just the wheat of the show <laughs> just the two uh the two straight white guys on the on the podcast you know? <laughs> well oliver's gonna be doing inside the huddle in a second but uh I don't know. Sometimes less is more, Weston. Mm, you know yeah, it's true. It's true. You know I mean, but between the two of us, the average height of our co-host has not changed compared <laughs> to the height of everyone. So it's fine. Years ago, there was a TV show called Wipeout. And one of the hosts of it was a guy called John Anderson, who's an ESPN sports center anchor legend. He made a mistake. And last week... Did he wipe he... out? Well, no, he, he certainly wiped out on the on the mic. He was running some highlights uh, from a Vegas Golden Knights NHL game, and he referred to Zach Whitecloud, who is the only uh, current member of the NHL from the Sioux Valley Dakota Nation. Apparently, Anderson mm. didn't know that because he goes, he says, what kind of a name is Whitecloud? It's a great name if you're toilet paper. Oh, no. So here, so here's the thing. So Anderson blew it, right? And the next day was like, this says, quote, this is totally on me. And I sincerely apologize to Zach, the Golden Knights. My job's to be prepared and know the backgrounds of the players. And I blew it. And get this. Zach White's cause says, I'm proud of my culture. I'm proud of where I come from, where I was raised, who I was raised by. I carry my grandfather's last name and nothing makes me more proud than be able to do that. In our culture, we were raised to be the first ones to reach out and offer help. So that's why I reached out to John this morning mm. and accepted his apology. No cancel culture, no nasty <laughs> tweeting, just a guy who blew it and blew it big. And another guy was like, hey, man, you know what you did. We know what you did. I know what you did. I accept if, your apology. If you would like to cancel George Cedarquist or or tweet it, actually, really tweet nasty comments at us because our Twitter page is basically dead at this point. No, so not. the more activity we get, the better. So I'm asking you right now, cancel George Cedarquist on what? Twitter, and we'll <laughs> send you a Lobia, OBS lapel pin <laughs> and whatever else we have in the in the box, the opera box. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go. Inside the huddle. 
Ryan McKinney is about to embark on the U.S. tour of Jake Heggie's For a Look or a Touch, a Holocaust-era opera as part of Music of Remembrance. OBS listeners might remember Ryan's name when we were amazed at one of the early COVID opera editing projects he tackled Mm. for Houston Grand Opera, the studio, and his filmmaking has continued to be part of his portfolio of skills. Well, before we jump into the conversation between him and Oliver, let's listen back to a milestone moment in his career singing Flying Dutchman in the 2010 Operalia competition. just a little bit of the aria for The Flying Dutchman, sung by Ryan McKinney from the 2010 Operalia competition. Welcome to Opera Box Score, Ryan McKinney. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So that was in 2010, which I'm going to go ahead and call like the competition era of your life. Uh, Just a few years before, you were famously uh, in the movie The Audition. And I think just about everybody um, who was like a finalist that year, like has a career of note. Yeah, it's been and one passed away. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, And then you represented the U.S. in the Cardiff competition. Go USA! Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Do you feel like those experiences, Operalia, the audition, Cardiff, uh, gave you maybe more name recognition at that time? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you really can't when you're a young singer, that's that's the best way to get people to know about you. They're they're kind of a double edged sword, right? Because they're like not really what we do. You know, it's kind of an aria competition, which isn't the same as like being in a role in an opera. So and it's also like terrifying for a young singer. It's just I remember that uh, Die Fristus Um was like, I was so excited to be singing at La Scala and, you know, Placido Domingo's conducting, but also just freaked out. <laughs> and it's a, an aria about serenity. I mean, like the way that mm-hmm. thing is built, you've just got to be so calm and oh, build, yeah. Yeah. build your climax like so slowly, like incrementally. Yeah. Um, yeah but it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, uh, I also feel like, I don't know how old you were when you did that, but you don't expect somebody in their 20s to be singing that aria, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I was about 30. Um, okay. Yeah, I, you know, like I sang Wagner before people really wanted me to sing Wagner. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of fine with that. Like when I talk to young singers now, I'm, I, you know, I think a lot of it is on some level, you have to sing what you love. Um, and if your voice fits that, that's great. And mine did, you know, to an extent, obviously, like you don't quite have the power you're going to have like, like now I can sing Dutchman with a lot more ease than I could at 30. Um, but yeah, you know, I think as long as you're doing it in a healthy way, it, it's fine. And especially in a situation like that, I wasn't going out and singing the whole role yet. And the, actually yeah. the, the monologue that, that I sang is kind of the easiest part, <laughs> believe it or yeah. not. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, you, you normally see people sort of work up to that a little bit more than I did, but. Well, 
are, is your calendar cleared in case Nicholas Brownlee uh, <laughs> needs a day off this summer? <laughs> uh, I love Nick, actually, and I'm super excited for him because, you know, I've sort of like been following him over the years. He was at Rice when I was at uh, at HGO and and sort of would ask me for advice. And I remember teaching him in a master class. So it's really cool to see him uh, having such a great success. Nicholas Brownlee is going to be singing uh, Dutchman at Santa Fe this year. Yeah. And another thing you've done with Nicholas Brownlee is uh, record Suoni La Tromba during COVID, which was <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and I, I wanted to pivot to that topic because uh, another way that your name came to my, into my consciousness was um, in the Houston Grand Opera COVID era finale to Marriage of Figaro, which was at a time when we were all like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? And it was mostly very sad type of uh, Zoom trying to collaborate with a pianist in a different city that um, mm. it was it was what it was, but none of it was stuff that I think we'll ever go back to and enjoy. But that video that you made um, with the, the, were they the young artists? With yeah, the, it was, it was the, the Houston Grand Opera studio singers. Well, if you haven't seen it, we'll put a link into uh, the show notes for today to remind you what that was all about. Wow. Uh, I guess we all had a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it was kind of interesting because I have filmmakers in my family. And okay. and so I kind of had been thinking about doing some stuff like that anyway. But, you know, I was lucky to have like my first gig was that got canceled was with Houston Grand Opera and they were paying some of the fees, um, even though they were canceled. And then some of the rest of my colleagues were like totally out of luck and and really having a hard time. And so we were like, well, what kind of stuff could we do to, um, you know, raise a little money for artists that were hurting and decided, you know, at first I was like everybody else. I was like, I'll get a friend to record a piano track and I'll sing something, but quickly realized like it could be fun to do like whole scenes and stuff. So um, did Houston Grand Opera know that you had that skill? Yeah, uh, I don't think they did. <laughs> they, uh, I asked them actually if they wanted to have the studio participate in something, um, and and I had the idea to do that. You know, the finale from the Marriage of Figaro. You know, I I know that piece really well. I've done it a lot, and it, it's fun to. It was very fun to just figure out how we were going to do it. You know, just because we only had like everyone just had cell phones. I mean, it was stuff they had at their house. You know, to turn into props and things. And I just arranged it on the screen and told them like exactly what direction to sing to. And like, nobody was in the same place the whole time. So, um, but, you know, it was kind of this weird time of kind of experimental opera, you know, we were trying to figure out what to do and, and a bunch of weird and fun things came out of it. And that was certainly one of my favorites.
working on a documentary with Stephanie Blythe and Jamie Martin. <laughs> yeah, so um, they the Chicago Opera Theater actually um, had us film their performances of Carmen um, from last year uh, with with Jamie and Stephanie, and so we we filmed the performances and also perform uh, also filmed a bunch of uh, behind the scenes and interviews and things like that. It's just a really fascinating way that they put it together. And I, you know, I don't know how much of the story everyone knows, but in this particular version, Stephanie Blythe was singing the role of Don Jose at pitch, like as a tenor. And yes, and was there, what, I was there. <laughs> what's shocking. And you know this, but yeah, it was yeah. shocking to me the first time I heard a rehearsal because I thought, Oh, it's going to sound like a mezzo singing Don yeah. Jose, but she sounded like a tenor, like a world-class yeah. male voice tenor. You, you close your eyes, you would have no idea. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we kind of, and then also Jamie doing her first Carmen and being a person that, you know, has wanted to sing that for a while, but hasn't been asked to by different companies and, and her story and then the company's story in general. So yeah, we're still trying to find some funding for it and, and putting finishing touches on it, but I hope it gets out in the world. Well, that's, that's story. super exciting. And you, give us a reason to talk about Chicago Opera Theater, which is where you will be later this month. Yeah. Um, singing the the gay, the gay Jake Heggie Holocaust opera. Yeah. <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> no, it's it's actually, I mean, that's the thing I love about Jake Heggie is that uh, he has a sense of humor and he understands the different, yeah. the, you have to have light in order for the dark to feel dark, you know, but if it's dark, dark all the time, then it's just like, Oh God, I can't watch this. But for a look, yeah, or I mean, a, that, for, yeah, for a look or a touch is one half of music for remembrance. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Music of remembrance is okay. the organization that put it together um, that commissioned it. And then the other piece that's with it is called uh, another sunrise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. You know, I think what you were saying is totally true. And I find this in dead man walking, which I, I have sung before and we'll sing again next season you know, this super heavy subject, but there's all of this joy in it and like humor and it kind of seamlessly works. Um, for a look or a touch is really a big chunk of it is fun and about these people that are in love. And it's really a story of, it's a love story primarily. And the, the Holocaust is kind of the backdrop for it, which of course makes it really dark in a lot of spots, but it's actually not like a super depressing piece to sit through. It's really, it's really beautiful. Um, There's dancing. So joyful. There is. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Dead Man Walking, which is uh, a role that you sing Joe de Rocher, Joseph de Rocher, and uh, you sang it in Chicago. And now that opera is finally making it to the Met. Yeah. Uh, and you get to sing Joe. It's crazy. Congratulations. So, that's that's wild. Amazing. <laughs> I agree with you. I, I mean, I'm just like over the moon about it. I'm so excited and to get to do it with Joyce and and Yannick Neze Segam conducting and Ivo Van Hova directing, opening the season. I mean, it's like it's kind of a dream come true. So yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. So is the beard you're wearing right now, is that uh part of your look for <laughs> for your Joseph? Uh, I think it will be. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, you know, the beard's actually been here now for the last several years. Um, I'm going to get some new pictures because everyone always asks me about it. But yeah, it's a, I think we, we did a, a photo shoot, which you can see if you go to the Met website and I have the beard in that. So I guess they're going to let me keep it for the fall. <laughs> well, maybe we should talk a bit about um, your physicality uh, in this role and yeah, sure. how you 
how you stay in shape uh, to be in your boxer shorts in front of. Yeah. Well, now you'll yeah. be in H. This will be in HD, right? So in front of you know maybe yeah. millions of people. Yeah, very so. very high definition. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know there's a couple parts of it. One is you know like you want to look good on camera, blah blah blah. But also like in that particular role, you have to do push-ups while you sing, and it's kind of a lot of them. Um, so that uh, something you you sort of have to get ready for. But uh, to be honest, like for the last, I would say. 15 years or so, I've been pretty um, fitness oriented in general. So I, I don't have to, I don't, I don't sort of like get ready for a show so much anymore. Um, I just like kind of staying in shape. I, I like to rock climb, I run, I lift weights, I do all kinds of stuff, whatever's like the thing that in the town that I'm doing that seems interesting, I'll do, I do jujitsu. Um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's not so much a like get ready for the show thing anymore. Although when I was younger, I, I would do that and, you know, eat chicken and broccoli for months or whatever stupid stuff people told me to do. <laughs> the, the dead man walking diet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, is there anything that you would tell other male singers or maybe even female singers um, what you shouldn't do? Did you learn anything like, you know, that's not really great for singing this particular thing? Yeah, actually, I just uh, I put this video out uh, this last week on Instagram when you're when you're weightlifting, you know, you listen to like power lifters and they grunt a lot. Yeah. And if you if you can put the kind of pressure like in a hissing sound like it's rather than yeah. uh, then yeah. that saves you a whole bunch of headache. But then there's also like you have to be careful with like jujitsu, for example, I won't do like when I'm about to do a show because get somebody like choking you and it's, you know. Yeah. It can be bad for your voice, but I would say in general, like you're way better off as a singer being physically fit and exercising a lot um, than you are not. Hmm. Um, in jujitsu, do you have to do like those uh, sharp noises that like ver verbalize the sharp? Okay. No. So jujitsu is more of like a grappling kind of thing. And it's, it's, okay. you know, essentially like wrestling. Um, okay. And yeah, I, I, so I, there's not a lot of like, you know, Kind of exactly. I don't you call that. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the topics we always like to ask our um, guests, especially if they have families, is what is your support system like? Uh, what was the conversation like about, you know, whose career is going to take a backseat? Well, we do X, Y, Z. Or do you, did you just bring in more people to like, you know, rally the troops and and help you out yeah i've had a i've been so so lucky um my wife tanya and i and our kids emma and lewis who are now 17 and 13 um have traveled together um really for the entirety of my career um and and we homeschool them um but also you know tanya does a lot of uh, remote work on this, our real estate business and some other stuff and and is a director in her own right and um and but luckily is able to to do that on the road with me um and and yeah we've been doing that going on gosh 17 years now really since emma was a baby you'll see you know even in the audition back then uh if you watch that you know i think emma and tanya are both in it um emma's a little tiny baby but you know that's always been really important to me and, and in a way i think you know I I probably could be, I don't know, could have gotten further in my career sooner or something like that if I hadn't wanted to focus on my family so much. But 
you know, it really grounded me. It kept me sane. It still does. And I, I think, you know, a lot of singers are kind of unhappy people because it's, it could be a really rough um, lifestyle, you know, traveling all the time alone. And, and so that's really like saved me over the years and, and I love it. And I'm super grateful to Tanya for being willing to try it. And, and we've had a lot of great adventures, the four of us. Have your kids had any cultural experiences that you know they would not have gotten otherwise? Oh, yeah. I, I remember they we were in Seoul, Korea. I was singing uh, Marriage of Figaro there. And they like just started playing with these kids at a playground. All Korean kids, none of them spoke English, but they like figured out this game to play. Um, it was like That's a game. kind of thing. Yeah. And, and they... Yeah, exactly. Not, <laughs> luckily not. But um, <laughs> yeah, they, but you know, they've had a million things like that. And I think there's certainly trade offs, like there's a, a lot of reasons why it's really difficult to do. And it's not for everybody. But um, they have had amazing experiences all over the world and kind of have a sense of like, people everywhere are generally people, you know, there's not as many differences as we think there are. Uh, and so I think overall, it's been really great for them. And certainly okay. great for me. And the homeschooling thing, since you brought it up, um, what type of preparation did you have to do to be able to teach your kids? Yeah, I mean, luckily, we live in an era where there's like, so much in terms of resources for that. Um, You don't, you know, I think most people think like, you're sitting down with a stack of books with your kids and reciting to them all of the knowledge of the universe. But, you know, nowadays, often what you're doing is kind of working through things with them based on materials that are available online or whatever, um, especially since COVID now there's just, you know, a million different things. And so we've done sometimes more like online school rather than strictly homeschooling. And we've dabbled in like just letting them do whatever they think they should do and kind of um, found a happy medium for us. But yeah, it does take a lot of time. And and I was, I was definitely involved for a long time too. Tanya and I did it together. And um yeah it was challenging (laughs) it's but now you know they're they're old enough that you can kind of be like okay like we didn't totally break them and they're smart like they can talk to human beings like you know normal um (laughs) um but yeah and homeschoolers are interesting because it's kind of the you know you run the gamut from super conservative christian you know keep their kids home because they don't want them to learn about evolution you have a lot of like hippie um we're gonna go live in the mountains and like eat foraged berries all day long. Um, and we sort of did it out of necessity. So we don't quite really fit into either of those camps, but, um, but we have met, met a lot of cool people that have helped us kind of figure it out along the way. Yeah. Like those, uh, people in Tennessee who won't put on Mary Figaro because, uh, the Carabino thing is just too confusing for audiences. Yeah. It must be very confusing <laughs> for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't, spent enough time talking about your artistry and I I want to close by hearing some of your Grammy winning recording uh, with Michael Tilson Thomas and the San Francisco Symphony of his settings of uh, Rilke poems, Meditations on Rilke. We're going to hear a bit of Herbst Tag. Do you remember making this recording? It was just a few years ago, but do you you remember this experience and the whole thing with Michael Tilson Thomas and like, you know, getting dangerously close to losing him and yeah. Rilke just I feel is like the poet that actually addresses those feelings very well it was an amazing experience especially when I think about the year before he sat me down and like played me some of them um and said that he wanted me to do them and was writing them for me 
and you know for anybody that's ever like sat down and and listened to a composer's music that they haven't shared with anybody um there's like a lot of pressure and I remember being scared that I wasn't gonna like them what would I say but then I love them and um and it was amazing it was just uh it was a wonderful experience Ryan McKinney thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score thanks so much for having me from Michael Tilson Thomas's Meditations on Rilke, Ryan McKinney with the San Francisco Symphony conducted by MTT himself. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. It's so easy. Uh, Last week on the show, we hyped a two-part listener mailbag Miyusha had written in from New York City and their second entry was about the production of Lohengrin at the Met. We were going to leave it for this show not realizing that Weston and I would be the two guys on this show the two <laughs> cis pet the two white, white guys males. on this show <laughs> which is not the team that at least in isolation wants to tackle Niusha's listener mailbag comment. So we are going to take their comments and kick it once more down the road, get a more diverse panel to tackle what is really quite a brilliant listener mailbag. A little bit more in our wheelhouse is Woody in D.C. who writes in to say, Hey, OBS, Washington Post had an obituary of Grace Bumbry. 42 curtain calls. Wow, she must have been amazing. In other news, one of the highlights in our area the last few months was a production of Fellow Travelers. Ah, yes. At Virginia Opera. It sounded great and it looked great. It's so funny that they're doing Fellow Travelers just in the D.C. area because, like, that whole opera is it's all about Washington, D.C. and the Lavender Stair. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, and, it's very topical. Yes, exactly. Uh, we're going to do a free throw then in the meantime and get back to Weston and his experiments with Apple Classical. Weston, first of all, how much is it costing? Well, I mean, it's this, it comes for free asterisk with, uh, your, um, with your Apple music subscription. So if you already have Apple music, you can try it out very easily and you probably already have. If you are not, uh, well, that's what this segment is for. Um, so like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of classical music people, opera people, especially, um, you, you might feel a little bit left behind by the state of streaming, right? Um, th I this is what, am. this is, <laughs> George may, George is still getting used to LPs. Um, so, uh, <laughs> he just listens on lacquer all the time. Um, the, the, the big thing that a, the, the market that Apple is trying to go for is this remaining holdout of physical media, uh, physical media in the classical music world, because right now classical music is the only thing keeping CDs alive. It's a big portion of the vinyl market. 
Um, and Apple is has decided, oh, we've had enough of this. So here's here's a bone. Uh, the, and so basically, the, the the pitch is is that you have a, a standalone app just for classical music, which will be separate from your Apple Music app. Um, it streams as high definition as they can possibly squeeze out of the files they have on hand, mm-hmm. which means we're talking about you know high quality wave files, um, some Dolby Atmos in there. They they also also have a few new ones that are made for Apple spatial audio, which I don't have because I don't have Apple headphones. So I don't I can't really speak to the effectiveness of that from an audio audiophile standpoint. Um, but they're streaming losslessly, basically, is the big selling point. Now, interestingly, this is something you could already do with your Apple Music app. You just have to go and fiddle with some settings first, which can be annoying. Okay. Um, but once you know that, it feels like, well, how necessary is this really? The big advantage in my mind is the ability to search for classical music composers, singers, and specific pieces, specific works, and it's very forgiving in the search engine if you're talking about alternative spellings, which is very important, right? Diacritics, baby. Yeah, it's those diacritics will get you every time. Uh, I think it's notable, too, because Spotify recently made made its search engine worse for classical music. So um, in other parts of the industry, maybe people are moving away from this searchability, Mm -hmm. right? Because the the whole streaming, the streaming idea is really built around pop music, you know, where you're able to, like, enter in the name of the song, enter in the name of of the artist, and that's all you need to know. But if you're looking for this one specific recording – you know, uh, of of Beethoven or, or or even a Russian composer where there's like 12 different spellings, mm-hmm. you're out of luck. And I did test a couple of searchings side by side on Apple Music and um, Apple Classical and the Apple Classical results are better. And it really, um, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 that's in my mind the big advantage because that was what they bought. They bought this this company that was basically making that their uh, their whole thing. So is there any like recording that you can't find? That's the that's the problem that I have with streaming in general. And this is my biggest gripe here. Um, Speaking as someone who likes the weird stuff, right? Um, There are definitely there are definitely missing pieces here. uh, Quite a few and some kind of important recordings, too. I I realize that two of my favorite carry on recordings, the um, uh, the Tristan and Isolde uh, uh, with. John Vickers and mm-hmm. Barons, I believe, uh, is not on there. At least it wasn't when I looked for it when I first uh, downloaded the app, which is, I think, a pretty big one to be missing. There was another uh, carry-on as well that was missing. There were some other smaller composers that were also missing, but like I would expect to be missing. Like You can't really find those to download on iTunes either right. um, or on like Spotify. Uh, but there are some like holes, and this this of course is the, my larger philosophical problem with uh, streaming is that when you're talking about live streaming, these contracts have to be renewed after a certain amount uh, amount of time. So it's a lot easier to just have an album just whoop disappear, go away forever, which is a problem if you're downloading as well. I will admit, um, because uh, but at the same time, like if you buy a CD, like uh, one of my favorite operas to come out in the past five years. Uh, uh, David Hertzberg's The Wake World. Mm-hmm. Um, if you purchase the CD and it goes out of print 
basically immediately because it's an independent music label, which is what happened to this. Um, you're you're good to go forever, you know, but you can't find it on any streaming that I've been able to find. And you can't, indeed can't find it on Apple Classical either. Another big problem that will affect a lot of people, a lot of those in-between classical pieces that are like, you know, this could be considered classical. This might be considered a little bit more you know, indie rock influenced a lot of some of the newer okay. stuff, unless it's a big name, might not show up. Um, and uh, it's and I think the biggest the biggest oversight to me is this is the actual way they put together your collection of music. You can add add albums to your collection. Okay. You can favorite certain songs and certain um, certain works, certain composers. It's, it's a kind of a cool idea. But if you look into your collection of albums, you can't search your collection. You have to search the entire oh, database, okay. which is a strange oversight because you can literally do it over on the uh, the normal music app. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of the things that holds people back from get, becoming streaming listeners is this idea of ownership, right? I feel like I own all of my my physical CDs, my vinyl, even my downloads. I feel like I own, even if I technically don't, according to Apple's, you know, iTunes, you know, uh, legalese. I feel like I own it. I don't feel like I own it as much when I can't search just my library. Man, so like the search engine is really great in one respect and like really lousy in the other. That's yeah. Odd. I will say uh, the sound quality is as good as it's going to get. It's better than CDs for um, source audio that is better than the original CDs. Uh, I've listened to some albums which sound as good as my CDs and some that sound better, uh, which is pretty cool and pretty exciting. It is convenient. I think I am going to keep using it, which is a kind of shocking oh, for me. Okay, but I'm not man. going to abandon CDs completely or I'm not going to abandon downloads completely because I need you need to be able to have that backup and have something that you own in the case it goes away, you know? But for average everyday listening, I think I recommend Apple Classical. Uh, yeah, well, this is not a paid promotion. I, I like No, it is not. <laughs> I like that. You're hedging your bets a little bit here. Of course, I, I will never use this. I've only just managed to like get Spotify to work. Although totally I will tracks. say, I have now listened uh, to the coronation an additional two times since we last spoke. So I'm, Drink. At, I'm at pass number five on the coronation. <laughs> Two-minute drill, that's always fresh. It's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. A New York Times article details the aftermath of Placido Domingo's resignation from L.A. opera following multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Audiences have yet to bounce back fully following the pandemic, which some administrators attribute in part to the loss of Domingo's star power. But the company is also doing better than ever financially and has begun forging an identity outside of Domingo that emphasizes new works. Quote, of all the major companies in the country, it is the youngest, says Opera America president Mark Skorka. I am very optimistic about the company. The Met Opera Orchestra is going on an international tour for the first time in over 20 years. Audiences in Paris, London, and Baden-Baden will be able to see the orchestra this summer, along with soloists Russell Thomas, Angel Blue, and Joyce D. Donata. 
Music journalist and critic Anne Majette has declined an honorary doctorate from the Cleveland Institute of Music due to the ongoing investigation of sex-based discrimination at the school. Said Majette, quote, I am not convinced, based on my many conversations, that CIM has acted in the best interests of its students and faculty. I hope and believe that the students and staff will take this gesture as a greater show of solidarity than my appearing in person could ever have been. Opera in the Ozarks is getting some of that sweet, sweet Walmart money. The Walton Family Foundation is donating $34 million to the company in order to design and build a new theater, among other amenities. The new house will seat about 300 people. In trade news, friend of the show, Chicago Opera Theater has a new general director. Lawrence Edelson will take on the role in July, taking over from interim GD Megan Smallwood. Quote, I have long admired Larry's vital contributions to opera, particularly through his work with American Lyric Theater. So says music director Lydia Yankovskaya. I am looking forward to lear- working with Larry in this new capacity as he brings his extensive experience and creative energy to Chicago. Lyric Opera of Chicago is getting its first ever artist in residence, soprano Whitney Morrison. The residency will include a pop-up mobile voice studio where the public can watch her rehearse for performances. Quote, I'm grateful to Lyric and the greater Chicago community for providing the opportunity to share and hone my craft, said Morris. Washington National Opera announced two new appointments that will oversee the newly defined artistic and production departments. Chelsea Antrim Dennis will join WNO as director of production, while Samuel Gelber has been promoted to the role of director of artistic planning and operations. On the disabled list, soprano Nadine Sierra posted on social media that due to physical and vocal fatigue, she'll be unable to sing in the upcoming production of Rigoletto at the Berliner Staatsoper. Irina Lungu will take over as Jilda for the first performance this Friday, but a replacement for the rest of the run has not been announced as of this taping. And on this day, May 15th, in 1567, it was probably the birth of Italian composer Claudia Monteverdi at Cremona. In 1759, Maria Theresia von Paradis was born, friend of Mozart. In 1771, Puccini's La Donna di Bellumore premiered in Naples. In 1823, Raimondes Le Finte Amazzoni premiered at La Scala. In 1858, it was the opening of the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden in London. Uh, that was actually the third opening, if you're keeping count. There was a fire in March of 1856. In 1939, it was the first performance of Douglas Moore's opera, The Devil and Daniel Webster, in New York City, and one just for me to finish it out. In 1993, it was the first performance of Steve Reich's opera, The Cave, at the Wiener Festspielhaus in Vienna. And that's your two in a drill. was a little selection from uh, Reich's The Cave. It's a very groovy little uh, segment. I believe it's titled Genesis 21. This is actually, surprisingly, not one I'm super familiar with. I love Steve Reich. I think he's fun. I think he's very... um, I I think sometimes his influence is a little bit underestimated, um, if such a thing is possible. He's, He's... 
he really is, I think, even more so than Philip Glass, the the inspiration that a lot of post-minimal composers look to. Um, even though Philip Glass gets a lot of the glory for that, I really do think that uh, Reich is sort of the OG there. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens, of course, when Oliver and Matt aren't on the show is that Steve oh, yeah. Reich becomes the play out <laughs> for the two minute Got some good stories here. You you know, you think we're kind of getting into the um the summer months and things are slowing down, but absolutely not. LA mm. opera so he, here's the thing about Los Angeles and, and this has nothing to do with Demigod. We'll get we'll get to that in a second. There's literally only one thing that you cannot be in LA. The only thing you can't be in LA is boring Mm. if you are boring that is the nail in your coffin that is the inscription (laughs) on your tomb right that city will handle basically everything except for boring this is why um uh pro football teams have struggled there which lousy pro (laughs) football teams and so you know mark skorka he talks about what this company is doing well is it the youngest major opera company it is right because la is is a City Maybe on city the for western babies. part of our nation, and so it's it's the the youngest city. Um, they've got celebrities, they've got money, they've got big ideas. They've got they traffic. They've got lots of traffic, and they're not <laughs> bored. But how how does Domingo's association and resignation from LA Opera how does that change the ball game here? Do you think? It's 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 kind of interesting. This is a, an interesting article. I encourage all of our listeners to go check it out because it's actually pretty thorough um, in terms of like, you know, uh, it's not really just about Domingo. It's really uh, it makes the point in the article that, in fact, before Domingo was, you know, uh, publicly shamed and and, and mm-hmm. taken out of this country, hopefully forever. Uh, with I believe that one concert in Florida, notwithstanding, um, there was uh, they were already they already knew that he wasn't going to be there forever. I mean, right. he, he's been you know you can't rely on the star power of someone like that who's been around for decades and decades and decades because he's going to kick the bucket eventually. Um, and they were already trying trying some things um, to make sure that they still had an audience. And they, I, I, I did make the point, I feel like they were really part of the leading edge of major opera companies. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, large, large companies, not, not storefront theaters or, mm-hmm. or things like this, like major, big, heavy hitting companies that really helped start the trend of going towards new opera, which now even companies like the Met are imitating. Yeah. Um, they, they are kind of in a better position because they um, got rid of Domingo early and weren't relying on that anymore. Um, you know, it's kind of a, uh, a bit of a blessing in disguise almost, you know, I mean, I think getting rid of Domingo is not a blessing in disguise. It's just a blessing. Um, but, uh, there is certainly, I, I think that it can be very tempting for major opera companies to get a big name like, like Lyric has with like Renee Fleming, where you just have that big name and, you know, yeah. it, it excites a certain subset of your audience, but it's only, the part of your audience that already knows a lot about what you're well, doing you can, and the one that's ones that would go anyway. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, you could also say that Los Angeles is a city which believes in the cult of personality. I mean, that Hollywood is True, based fair. on the cult of personality. But what goes along with that in Los Angeles is that nothing lasts forever. You just have mm-hmm, to look at mm-hmm. Hollywood to see how they will pick up 
elevate, chew up, and spit out one person over a number of years. <laughs> so if Domingo wasn't going to like basically take care of himself and force his own exit through the problems that he caused, eventually he was going to be tossed out, maybe not by LA yeah. Opera, but by the city of Los Angeles as a whole. And then yeah. some other celebrity was going to take place. Now, is that celebrity now a person or is that celebrity a movement? Is that celebrity an art form yeah. of doing more progressive and new works? Yeah, I, I think that L.A. is a fa fascinating city for opera. I think that there are some uh, some cities in the U.S. that for whatever reason have not been conducive to opera. But I, uh, you know, I always say, you know, to my friends who've never seen an opera before, there is an opera out there that you will like. Uh, I might not have a recording of it on me right now, but I know there is one. This art form has been around for too long and has covered too much ground and too many genres to not have something for everybody. And I think that L.A. has such a distinctive personality that just screams out for new operas. Yeah. And yeah. I I think it's a great model going forward for cities like that have a little bit of L.A. in them, you know? Well, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> a little bit of L.A. Uh, so, a little bit, okay. bit of glamour. <laughs> so, so $34 million is a, is a hefty chunk of change from from Mr. Walmart and company. Exactly. Uh, uh but I, I think I think the weird thing for me was that they're spending thirty four million dollars on a theater that only has three hundred seats. Uh, apparently, there's some additional amenities. I like, would hope uh, so. Uh, expanded costume shop, housing. Uh, of course, this is a summer program which has been running since the fifties. Alumni yeah, including yeah. Latonia Moore, Mark Delavan, and others who have gone on to perform at the Met. So it does have that um, residential aspect to it, and and that is is expensive. I will say $34 million goes a long way in the middle of Arkansas. No, that, that's true. That is true. You could talk about your supply chain issues for lumber, but let's let's be honest. That is a huge amount of money. You could buy at least 300 seats for that amount of money. Uh, let's, let's get this out over to Chicago. So uh, Chicago Opera Theater, a friend of the show here, um, Ashley Magnus, stepping down earlier this year, moving back to Michigan. Uh, getting into the brewing business, which I think is like there's a family connection maybe uh, for her there. So they do a search and they have a new general director, Lawrence Edelson. Mm -hmm. uh, Lawrence or Larry, as he go he goes by as uh, music director, Lydia Yankovsky has said. So he comes to COT from ALT, American Lyric Theater, and I believe is retaining that post as well. So what? So I mean, what what does this hire bring and not bring to COT? I mean, I, from what I know of Larry Edelson's work, I like what he does. I think he's going to be uh, good in the role. I was a little surprised that they weren't going to uh, go with someone who, you know, I mean, I, we're not one to talk, you and I, George, here on this show. This is but the cis-het white man show, white dude, man. right now. <laughs> I, I I don't know about the 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 cis or, or hetness necessarily, but um, a white man certainly. Um, I I think that um, I I I I feel like COT's big like claim to fame just not not so long ago when they imported uh, when they uh, uh, when they hired uh, Lydia Yankovskaya, I believe it became uh, or maybe it was Ashley Magnus. Uh, I can't remember whichever one came first or second. Once the second one was was hired, it became the 
the first regional opera company in the U.S. to have a female artistic mm -hmm. director and yes. music uh, yes. and uh, general director, right. um, which I think is fantastic. And I, I was I was thinking, hoping um, that maybe this was, you know, a, a direction they wanted to keep going into the future. Um I mean, no, no hate at all. I love COT. Full disclosure, I used to like work with them quite a bit, and I, I love the company. Um, but I, I really, I really do think that um, uh, I, I was expecting something along those lines. I, I will say, and that you pointed this out, George. Like this, this, this does solidify their commitment to new opera. Absolutely. Um, which I think is exactly where COT wants and needs to be. So if he's the right guy for the job, like he's the right guy for the job. Um, and uh, maybe we can get some more diversity in other positions as well. So well, that, uh, that's exactly what the hire says, right? Is, is yeah. that with Larry Edelson, what you're getting is someone who has been in this business a very long time. Of course, he started as the artistic and general director at Opera Saratoga. That was in 2014. He was with ALT at the same time as well. Uh, recently initiated the Opera Writers Diversity right. and Representation Initiative, uh, which was recognized in Musical America in 2021. So this is a guy who plays the long game and who really commits and follows through. And mm -hmm. if you want to bring new works to the stage, which is where he's really made his name. That seems to be the brand and the mantle that COT is going to pick up in the coming seasons. Yep. Yep. I agree. Uh, speaking of uh, developments in Chicago, we have this Whitney Morrison residency, which is really cool. I'm very excited about it. I want to talk about specifically this pop-up rehearsal space. She's literally going to have like a little like transparent trailer and okay. she's going to like, and they're going to like drive it to like various neighborhoods in Chicago. Yeah. And she's going to warm up, practice, learn her roles, um, in view of the public. It is simultaneously like one of the zaniest ideas I've ever heard, but also honestly a great idea. I would love to like be out and about and just run into the uh, Whitney Morrison mobile <laughs> just to, and seeing her like seeing her process. I think it's going to be great. You know, I, I don't know, man. Look, <laughs> the old slogan in the NBA is don't hate the player, hate the game. Right. So I don't, I don't hate the player here. Whitney Morrison. Look, She's a Chicago native. She went through the Ryan Opera Center. Yeah, she's yeah. got chops. She's done a variety of work, most recently this season in, in proximity. I don't understand how this like demystifies the art form. It, it, it feels like, like a weird brand of performance art. It does. It, but that's, that's what I find appealing about it. I feel like the way they're framing it in their press is to people who have never who, who know opera who like you know already go to the lyric and are like I want to see some behind the scenes stuff this is kind of a cool quirky way to see that but I think to most people who have never been to an opera or just like walking you know going to work one day seeing this it's going to come across as performance art but that in itself could be kind of interesting like I I'm honestly kind of into it I mean, it will come as no surprise to any of our listeners that I'm into weird performance art. So you're going to so, get it. You're going to get it, bro. <laughs> I'm so excited for it. I really, really hope I run into this. I don't want to like seek out where she's going to be. I want to like organically come across well, her. Good luck. I, I don't want to talk too much inside baseball because if you're not from Chicago, these locations 
for the growing room installation, as it's called. This is uh, four locations in two weeks. Two, two of these are in the loop, in the heart of downtown. Mm-hmm. One's on the west side and one's on the south side. So I, I don't know how you're going to kind of stumble across this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll be downtown one day uh, and just, you know, hear, hear a little bit of a voice wafting through the breeze. And I'm like, I bet that's the... <laughs> I bet that's the the box. <laughs> okay. Going a little further afield, that is the Met Opera Orchestra doing their first international tour in 20 years. Um, it's Paris, almost it's London, 2002, London. I believe. Yeah, exactly. Which is I, wild. I assume um, David Krause, the, the principal trumpet for the Met, who we had on the show and, of course, has his own show as well. I assume he's going on this tour yeah i hope so i, I hope so it, sound, it sounds like a good time i mean that's the big three right it's london paris and baden baden uh <laughs> i mean it ain't berlin but if for the summertime baden baden it's a spa town i mean it's yeah a, it's, it's a, a nice place town, yeah. so you know I, I i i think it's interesting that they're bringing back this med tour i'm kind of surprised the first one in this law i wonder if they're like defining it strangely because i, I could have sworn they've done something at some point i think it's the first international tour technically or, or something mm-hmm. uh, but it did put me in mind of um, of something that's been at the back of my brain recently, um, I I think we are at a time now where the Met or companies like the Met of similar sort of you know stature should bring back Met touring productions mm-hmm. of operas. You've said um, this before. I have. I, I I know it's a big financial ask, um, but I think we're at a point where. Um, a lot of the bigger companies have grown some roots. We don't have the same like level of cutthroat competition that we mm-hmm. had when, when during the heyday of these Met touring companies. Right. So they're not stepping on anyone's toes, really. Even small regional opera companies, you know, might be doing like an opera or two per season in some of these smaller cities, uh, or even decent sized cities. Um, I I think that now is the time yeah. to bring back Met tours. I really it would, do. It would never, it would never, it would never work because they already have their tours in the form of the Met in HD. Now, look, you can tour a Broadway show. I get that because they can crank out eight shows a week. These are smaller sets. These are smaller orchestras. Weston, you and I both know there's no possible way you could tour a Met show. Oh, I think you absolutely it's, it's could. No I, it would be expensive. But I think with the right opera, a small orchestra, even, I think you could really, really do it. I really do, and I and because they they've done it before, they could do it again. And I think now is a great time to to reintroduce people to live opera across the U.S. who don't have the access to it. I I, I often I often you know feel a little spoiled living in Chicago because I've right. got two or three opera companies in my backyard. You know, just and and even more if you want to break it down to smaller like storefront companies um i'm i'm just you know i, I get reports from home sometimes back back in alabama a once you know right. bustling opera company mm-hmm. 30 years ago mm-hmm. is is not so much you yeah. know okay. um and i think that you know you need that jolt from live performance from a big company like the met to really sell it and i i think that you know i i think that in terms of extending its reach the live and hd can only go so far People will. People have all seen the ads for the live and HD at this point. They're either going to go or they're not, you know. And I think live gives you just that little edge, you know. And I think this could be a great part of their new opera initiative as well, you know. Live gives you the edge. That I will agree with. Let's wrap this show up. 
Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score. Man, it goes quickly when there's just two of us doing this, Weston. <laughs> and that, of course, Oliver helping with the Ryan McKinney interview, helping you set that up and, of course, execute it as well. Big thanks to both of them. Good Call, Bad Call, how we're going to take you home, starting with Weston Williams. My good call is that I'm not going to be here next week <laughs> because I'm getting married. Wait, so, what? <laughs> you taking a show off to get married? Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I buried the lead a little bit there, but yes, I will be. I will be gone next week. So if the audio is terrible, you know who to blame. Not me. Your wife. <laughs> That's awesome, man! Congratulations. I wish you both the best. It's super exciting. I finally have started watching Chicago. You've done it. You finally did it. I, I'm just so behind on everything, but I am grateful to Cummings for tipping me off on Schmigadoon. And Chicago is literally every bit as good. It's probably, for me, an even better series because the musicals are not golden age of musicals. It's the, like, gritty 60s and 70s musicals. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like, could there be a schmopera? Could you do, like, a six-part TV series that was all built around operas? I... Oh, absolutely, you could. It might be too much of a reach on it. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us that voice memo or just email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can find stuff we've talked about and the links for those at our website, operaboxscore.com. And also... That is where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Ryan McKinney, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your favorite cishet white guy. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week when I report back from the 2023 Opera America Conference in Pittsburgh. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more $34 million theater seats. Join us.